This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Jevon McDonald. Jevon is the co-founder of Tier. Tier is everything a developer needs to create and manage software, pricing, and billing. In this episode, we discuss how two of his companies were acquired by Salesforce and Sneak, founding startup North and the early tech scene days in Toronto, and why the timing is right for Tier. Please enjoy my conversation with Jevon McDonald. Jevon, I'd love to start with your early work experience. You had a lot of interesting looking companies like Silver Orange, Firestoker, Go Instant. Why did why were you in that space? Did you have an entrepreneurial background? Like I, I'm very curious of why you kind of co-founded so many different ventures there. You go back to the earliest days. I think I was pretty clear pretty early on in my life that I didn't have like I wasn't on a good path to work in an office job day in and day out. Um I my my mother was a school teacher, which you know isn't an office job really. And my father definitely did not thrive in an office environment. Um, and so 
I just identified with the fact that they, you know, that that wasn't sort of where I wanted to be. Um, but very quickly I realized I had to sort of figure out what that meant. Um, and it was a magical time because computers were, you know, in the mid nineties, uh, when I was just in junior high school, um, computers were all of a sudden highly valued, but there weren't a lot of people who really understood them. And, you know, there's a lot of folks like me now who sort of trod that path at that time. But the, the fact that that was open to me and then creatively, I just felt so excited whenever I sat down in front of a a computer, whether it was, you know, QBasic um, to kind of uh, create a game or um, as I learned sort of more languages and sort of started to explore more. I just realized like, this is where, this is kind of where I want to spend my life. This is like what I want to do. And so um, in junior high, uh, in, in the ninth grade, there was uh, some friends of mine whose mother really encouraged us to not just play video games, not just code random stuff all day, but was like, why don't you go and like try and get a contract to do a website during March break? <laughs> and so we 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 did um and uh, with her sort of mentorship we went out and we would do like work for hire and we did things like the department of veterans affairs website and websites for museums and things like that and that eventually became silver orange which was my first company um and that was a group of seven of us who came together we were all equal partners we all had sort of equal voting shares and it was, you know, sort of a very idealistic way to, to build a company. And a lot of those folks are still there. The Silver Orange still exists. They still do incredible work. If you use Firefox, they did, uh, they designed the logo. They did all of the sort of e-commerce store for, for Firefox, um, Duolingo. They, they've done like all of the work for, for that company. They continue to thrive. I haven't been involved for almost 20 years now, but it's amazing to see the work they do. And then some of us went off and did our own things. Some of my um, co-founders went to do other things and I just decided to start uh, my own companies and really got excited about products and building products. And that's where things like Firestoker kind of came from, was a desire to get out there and build stuff. I think if I was doing it today, I'd be one of those built in public sort of people who are just like very earnestly sharing and, um, and building from scratch. That doesn't happen so much anymore for me. It's not sort of like the approach that works for me, but I, I think sort of the younger version of me would have been very, very excited by that community and, uh, and how people approach sharing and, and building in public. With Go Instant, Go Instant was actually acquired by Salesforce. What was Go Instant? Um, what did you learn? Was that like your first acquisition? And like, what did you learn through that acquisition process? Whether like things that you should be doing or things that you wish you could have improved on? Yeah, I Go Instant was a bit of a culmination culmination of things for me. Um, one was I had come over a period of I'm going to say ten years to realize that timing is everything. Like, it doesn't matter if you're right. It doesn't matter if you've got amazing technology, if like people aren't ready for what you want or what you're building. And if they don't want it, you're going to sort of be working into a void. And so previous to Go Instant, I had been part of a company 
in Austin, Texas, that was very much sort of rode the social media way. We we built a business that went from four of us to like 180 employees in about 18 months. Uh, we acquired six companies. It was just like very rapid fire. And it was because we were sort of moving with where the world was going and it made it easier, a lot easier. And so I kind of really came to appreciate the fact that that timing matters. And so with Go Instant, there was this kind of shift that had happened with technology at the time. And people now are, a lot of people are familiar with Node, Node.js. Um, but what was interesting about that at the time was it allowed you to kind of make multiple calculations in parallel, let's say it that way. Like your web server didn't block when a request came in. Um, and so you could handle multiple things at a time. And then if you could persist that state somewhere, you could like really start to do things that you just could not do with like Apache web server or IIS or whatever. And I was like pretty interested in that generally, but to be frank, like was not sort of like, I wasn't going to like figure out the crazy new um, the application of that technology. But I met this guy who became my co-founder, Gavin Uma. Um, and he was sort of like, he was deep, deep in node, node land and, and what it meant. And sort of, I, I would say like, wasn't as, um, didn't, wasn't sort of as caught in the past of web design and development as I was. He definitely saw the future. And then I think that was primarily because he had done a lot of gaming work before and was making the transition to web. And so we were going back and forth. We had met, I had spoken at a conference, we had met, he had these ideas. And then one day he was like, Hey, like I, we can, we can have multiple people sort of using the web together at once. And it was just like, lightning in a bottle in terms of inspiration and excitement. And, um, and so we sort of spent a lot of time thinking about, okay, if this is like the next shift, if this is the next change, what does it mean for all these things? Gaming, consumer web, enterprise, B2B software. We sort of went through the list. And the thing at the time was like, we we're like, the web's going to become multiplayer. We have to help people do more things and do new things because they are using the web together. And so we built Go Instant. It was at its core, it was a co-browsing application. You could put in a website address and you could browse it with multiple people at the same time. It was a, it was a kind of crazy how good it was at the time. Um, you could use it on an iPhone or an iPad and someone else could be on a web browser. and. Um, but people weren't looking for that. They weren't looking for what we called shared web experiences. Like, um, and so we had to create an application for it. So the first two things we built were a sales, assisted sales application and a customer service application. And we, you know, we had the slogan, kind of all, get closer to your customer. We had uh, uh, mascots for customer support chicken and sales bear or something like that or like it was just so really we had a lot of fun with it um but it 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 worked like um you know i still get some people to this day who say like oh like you totally helped me rethink the way i was doing sales that sort of thing and um and so as we built 
sort of that application of the technology, we were still under the hood building like a backend that was focused on conflict resolution, basically for multiple actors who are trying to click on the same button and there's race conditions everywhere. And we were backwards compatible to IE6, I think it was, Internet Explorer 6, which <laughs> was like a whole thing on its own. And, um, and very quickly, we sort of, I think, just got the attention of various people in those industries. And they sort of saw, yeah, this is like a future for, for the web that feels really important. And one of those was, was Mark Benioff at Salesforce, who, you know, is someone who truly is just always 10 years ahead of the crowd. And I think in a lot of ways that acquisition probably was, you know, sort of 10 years ahead of, 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 of things. You see Figma now, which if you go back and look at our demos, like those interactions, that sort of multiplayer state for an application, that was stuff we were up on stage talking about all over the place. And, um, and so, yeah, I think like we made a bet on where things were going. I think we were right. And because we were right, things really tr like were truly a lot easier. And so I think the learning for me, go back to your question, um, was that you have to be a bit, you have to kind of be intentional about trends and what, where people want to be. And then you have to be realistic about where they are. I mean, had we, there are companies today doing real time backend as a service for multiplayer web apps, like build, you know, your Figma. And that's the right play today. Back then, if we had been like, nope, this is what we believe. This is what we're building. We're not doing it any other way. We would have just disappeared because we were way, way, way too early for that. And so I think that the learning there is you have to be intentional, not just about understanding what you're doing that's important and new, but how people are going to be able to actually put it to work and use it. And um, yeah, that's kind of, that was a, I think a major takeaway for me, the whole thing. With trends and timing, what have you learned with either of those things? If maybe you view them differently, but you know, like, let's say, let's like look at an example of like AI right now is a major trend and everyone's looking to jump on that and build into their, is that something that people should be focusing on or should you be unearthing like opportunities that might be less known or like they're be well before the mass yeah. public knowing about them i guess like just how do you think about timing and trends because you have started so many things do you need to know that problem specifically or should you ride these larger waves i guess i think there's different phases of these trends and then you there's you have the based on your skill set and who you know your your interests, you have different differing abilities to participate depending on where things are. Um, to be frank, with like crypto, I think that that people who had the skill set of being a promoter and a marketer and a storyteller, that was that was a great that was right skill for that that trend. Um, if you were a brilliant technologist and you just purely wanted to build great applications of, of crypto, I think you're, you've largely weren't able, like, you know, I, there's a lot of stories of people who were, but overall there's not a lot of durable technology that was created that's still around. And I think that we're going to continue to see less and less relevance for, for a lot of that stuff. And that's not a knock on anyone. It's just like, the most brilliant minds who applied themselves to that technology didn't sort of, that was the wrong timing in terms of there. But if you're a promoter and a marketer, like it was like, 
Jones, Gold Rush, amazing. AI is sort of back to the nerds in a lot of ways. I mean, like, um, I think there's a lot of marketers and promoters who truly want to be at the forefront of what's happening with AI. But the reality is, uh, and, and they have a lot to work with because there's a lot you can do with the existing tools, but it's hard to get a, it's hard to get any sort of real edge, real, any real advantage because there's so much technological capability that the next person can do the exact same thing. And, but if you're a builder, if you're a, uh, an engineer, you're a developer, you're even like a, a, a technical product, uh, oriented person, um, Figuring out now how to apply AI into all these different disciplines and verticals and to like materialize value out of all this technology. Like that's, that is exciting. Like if that is worth spending your time on, but it's like that ship is like really moving quickly now. And so, you know, playing catch up to a trend isn't, is not like being on the, rest of it. it the job's different so i don't think anyone gets into ai today and like don't get into it if you have an illusion that it's going to be easy i think you can win big i think there's crazy stuff that that can be done to create value in different industries and consumer products and everything but it is not going to be easy you are going to have to be smarter and work harder and fly faster than everybody else and that's different than someone who you know is on the at the very crest of something as a moment of insight, you know, you don't at that point kind of need to be the smartest person in the room. You really can move with the trend. And so it's, it's different, but it is, it, it is relevant. It does. I mean, I think about it, I'm, you know, like how can I apply this to my business? Um, and there's been a lot of people for a lot of years. I mean, it's amazing to think that, you know, CDL in particular, um, Jay and Avi and all the folks there that really have been thinking about the applications of AI for a long time. There's been folks like Gordy Rose who um, really have been encouraging people and Tommy and stuff to think about this um, for quite a number of years in Canada. And now you're seeing the sort of you know high availability of the technology. So I'm pretty optimistic that some really cool companies are going to get built. Um, in the next few years and then like some really cool ones are going to get absolutely destroyed too because it, it is like it is incredible just to watch how fast things shift but technology is real i mean this is something we forget like technology is a real thing that changes the economy and it changes society and we've almost been like you know we've been drip fed the internet we started with dial up and we moved to like high-speed DSL, and then we all got fiber to our house, and now our phones are like 5G, and everything's just going at a gigabyte a second all around us. And like that happened over a period of like decades, multiple decades. And so it feels like normal, but it's like, but technology changes, they kind of happen all at once, and then take, and then they take forever. And there's an author, um, her name's Carlota Perez. She wrote this book called technological revolutions and financial capital i think it's called and she looks at the like moment of creation of important technologies um like wireless messaging being one um uh 
railroads uh, being another example. She looks at five of them and then looks at the sort of hype. It's not called the hype cycle in this book, but sort of like the growth of, of hype and the high allocation of capital that tends to happen into these spaces. Ultimately, sort of the destruction of a lot of, of that initial phase of creation and then goes into what's called the installation phase. And I'm kind of butchering this. There's it's a lot more nuance to it. But I'm almost eager to see AI like in the installation phase where like the hype is kind of a bit gone and now people are just getting to work, building businesses and creating value with it. Um, but that is where we'll go. That is where AI will go. And um, we're sort of moving out of the like rabbit. I shouldn't say we're moving out of it. We are definitely in the middle of and maybe nowhere near the height. I don't know of the al capital allocation phase, but um, but we'll that will continue to happen. And then. Like what's after, like, you know, what does AI break open? Like what's the next techno technology change? Like, I think the insane thing is like another one's going to happen in our lifetime. Like we had the web, AI could be this next one. And there probably will be another one in the next few decades. The speed at which it's happening just seems to be amazing. And that excites me because that's where like entrepreneurs can build incredible companies. They can do really special things. And the random person who's like sitting in a, you know, university lecture hall today could be the next, you know, whatever. Um, they just have to pay attention and 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 be a bit lucky and 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 I think work um, purposefully to try and do something with with all these cool new things that are happening. I guess that could be a nice segue into you know you started startup North.ca like over sixteen years ago co-founded Volta out of Halifax. So you've kind of had your hand in, you know, the Canadian startup space for a long time now, I guess. What's been your biggest takeaway from building a community like online as well as like in real life? Is there nuances there? And, you know, how's that, how have you seen that shift over the last like 16 plus years in Canadian tech? Yeah. I mean, it's it, startup North, you know, I arrived, I moved to Toronto. My wife was going to medical school there. We had just gotten married. Um, it was from PEI. I had, you know, started technology companies, but, you know, the sum total of my sort of worldview was, you know, a few trips to Boston and a few trips to Toronto and stuff like that. Um, and I got there and, like, I didn't, I didn't know anybody. Um, but then I quickly realized, like, Nobody else really knew anybody either. Like there was not a big technology community in Toronto at the time. There was actually a feeling like, you know, this is um, 2005 sort of thing um, that like the dot-com boom had sort of like eviscerated it. Everyone had moved to like, <laughs> anyone who made money had moved to Muskoka or something like that. And then like the city was just sort of left empty. And I remember like literally walking down Spadina Avenue cold wind just like you know um cutting right through and thinking like there's nobody in this town like me. i mean i literally felt that way like where are all the like people who want to build companies and like love technology and um and so i got to know a, a few people and then the, just it happened that year david crow started demo camp i mean it was like demo camp one it was a it was a wiki sign up page and um, I think it was at the Bubble Share offices so that might, or maybe that was number two, but it was like this office on Spadina that 
Albert Lai. Um, he had a company, they were doing photo sharing and, um, you know, there was a handful of people and I was like, these are my people. This is like, this feels really, really good. And there were some just crazy, interesting people. Like I think back, um, it was like a totally odd crowd. Like, like there was very little common thread in terms of anything other than our interest in technology and business. And there were people who showed up who had really awesome companies like Leila Bujnani with Tinai, well, it's now Tinai, then called E-Day. Uh, Albert with Bubble Share. Um, there was like one or two VC funded companies in Toronto. And it was like, this, this sounds, this is, this is, I want to do more of this. And so demo camps continued and they became sort of a really special part of the community. And David, um, David Crow really, I think he set the values for the community, for all of the startup community at that time. And they were very much the sort of O'Reilly Foo Camp, sort of like, you know, um, create more value than you capture and sort of, um, you know, very sort of altruistic but and egalitarian, but at the same time, pretty ruthless in terms of like the expectations in terms of quality of ideas and things like that. And, and so um, I just like, was like, I'm just going to start writing about all these, these, um, these companies and these entrepreneurs and these people that, that are trying to do things in Canada. I mean, I, I still identify pretty strongly as a Canadian, Canadian entrepreneur. I mean, it's the reason I'm still here. And back then I certainly thought like, okay, this is different than my friends, like who are building companies in the Bay area and stuff like that. And so, um, I just was like, I'm not going to like make this complicated. I am just going to write what I how, write it, how I see it. And then Jonas Brandon, who co-founded Startup North with me, um, uh, he and I met. I I did an event called Scotch Camp, and again, it was like I literally just wanted to hang out with people. And I didn't know anything about Scotch, and the whole point was I wanted to learn about it. So I invited a bunch of people, and they thought <laughs> they were going to get taught about like all these great scotches. We went to Allen's on the Danforth, and I was like, No, you're, we're here to teach each other. So if you know anything about any one of those bottles up there. Like, let's, let's buy the bottle and you can like, you know, you can, you can teach everyone in the room a couple of things. And I think a couple of people knew some stuff, but most people didn't. And, um, and so Jonas and I started Startup North. David um, very quickly joined and co-founded it with us. And we just started writing, you know, writing it how we saw it. And it was at a time when people were not doing that in, in Canada. And certainly not from the entrepreneur's perspective. I mean, we were three entrepreneurs who were writing about other startups and other founders. Um, and um, at, from that point of view, and we quickly saw like, you know, we would write about a company and like they would get the attention of bigger publications or from VCs who were interested in their space or whatever it was. And it felt like it was a valuable service to the community. Um, and so startup North became a bit of an umbrella for, for different events. We did startup empire and, and we would, um, and a handful of other things. Demo camp was also sort of its own thing, but we all sort of ended up 
kind of working together on on making all that stuff happen. And and it was all about just building the community. Startup North was sort of a Canadian perspective. Demo Camp was sort of the Toronto perspective. And um, yeah, it was an amazing kind of run. And then um, I think over time, um, we just started to see more and more Less and less of a border, it'd be the best way to put it. We, the big change in Canada was this repeal of the Section 116 Act by Jim Flaherty to enable, basically enable American VCs to invest in Canadian companies. Um, the reason that couldn't happen before was there used to be a law that every investor in a fund had to sign off on a transaction that met a certain witness test and this is this is old stuff so i don't totally remember all the details but there were instances of companies canadian companies doing transactions where you had to have five six seven thousand signatures because like mutual funds were lps in in the venture capital fund and like grandma had to like sign um uh uh in order to approve that the transaction again there's a lot of detail and nuance there that i'd have to kind of go back and refresh on but Suffice to say, the, the modus operandi in the U.S. was do not invest in a Canadian company. It is a hassle. It is a tax problem. And, um, and so the, that was, we built the community at a time when not, not many of us had access to very much funding at all. And um, when, that act, when that changed, that was actually with GoInstant. I very intentionally went to the Bay Area and raised pretty much our whole round in the U.S., because I could, I had to do a lot of explaining to, to American investors that it was fine. Um, and you know, we were one of the very early companies to do a U.S. investor-led seed round in Canada, um, and that was all just made possible because only a few years earlier um, that act had been repealed, or or however they changed it, and uh, enabled that to happen. And I guess, what's your view on the tech space now? Like, I feel like. At least from my perspective, the border is almost invisible in a sense. And, you know, there's been huge companies starting Canada. There's lots more venture capital. Uh, there's a lot like I feel just even just the overall sentiment of Canadians, different industries, there's a lot more excitement around tech. So, you know, has that been a net positive, you think, for like a from a builder perspective? Has that not changed at all? Like, I'd love to get your view on like what the impact has been on more like that kind of builder founder community because like yeah there's a lot more attention but has that really impacted that space though yeah i mean like it's as for a canadian entrepreneur it's it's incredible benefit um people don't realize like we really had a couple of venture capitalists in canada back then slander them calling them ex-bankers be like you know our big dig um they didn't understand i call it the abundance mindset of like a, a typical successful investor today it was very much a financial engineering exercise to make sure that they protected their downside that their funds were like you know not going to have any big losers and they tended to be very heavy-handed with different provisions and things like that. Um, the environment just wasn't competitive at all. And so, you know, there's, I, I don't know like who gets the most credit or anything, but I would say in Canada, 
like you could see the funds making the change to adapt to a more competitive environment. And I think some funds really did an amazing job. Funds like Inovia, um, uh, you know, and then there's funds that came later that, so they didn't have to kind of make the transition, but a lot of them just disappeared. And it was cause like, they just couldn't, they weren't going to get the deals. They couldn't compete. Um, I, but I do. Yeah. I think about, but Inovia and Chris and the team there and how they sort of navigated that change. I think it's like a fascinating topic um, because um, it was like a very tumultuous time for investors in Canada, for sure. And then, but for entrepreneurs, it was like, get on a plane, go. I mean, at some point the investors started coming here too, but, um, and then we just saw hundreds and hundreds of companies getting financed. And then there was sort of, I think a, particularly in Waterloo, a big movement around like going into YC and going down to the Bay Area. That was hugely beneficial to the entire country, I think, to have all those those folks kind of going and soaking up that sort of cultural aspects of of what was happening at the time and sort of repaged. Some of them were kind of, not everyone was coming back, but some were, and they were sort of getting, getting that um, into the fabric of the Canadian startup scene. And then you know, with that global access, I think comes a global, like the same expectation that companies in the Bay Area or anywhere else have around ambition and quality, execution capability, you know, um, and very quickly, you know, the problems became, it was, wasn't like okay, Canada has a lot of software developers coming out of university, like we've got this untapped resource. It was like nobody here knows how to run product management, right? Like we don't have a single growth marketer in the place. And that's not true today, but for quite a while, it was like, oh crap, we're like hitting, we're like hitting the outer edges here of what, what I think companies can do. And some broke through, some did amazing things and some got kind of lost along the way. And that was okay. That's sort of how it happened. But um, I think every Canadian entrepreneur had to be very cognizant of like, what are the limitations um, uh, that are present and, and you had to be smart about it. And then someone would come along and completely ignore them and just break through. And, and then you had examples like Shopify where you just like could do nothing, but just be completely enamored and inspired by like, not only what a great product they had built and how good their timing was, but just how intentionally they built a really special company. And like, so it's one thing to like have a small success and sell your, you know, have a small exit to an American company. It's another thing to watch someone else like build this just truly special thing. And that I'm like, that's going to pay dividends for a long time to come. And, um, and obviously since then, I think particularly like when Shopify did their Bessemer led round in, I'm going to, I don't know, remember the year it was 2009 or 10 or whatever it was 11 or something, but like, like they, it was clear that they were just, they were going to go the distance. It felt very clear, at least to a lot of us at the time. And since then, a lot of companies have done that. And, um, and so as a, for an entrepreneur starting today, like, I just struggle to think why you would spend much time thinking about the limitations of building in Canada. Like it's just, it's not productive anymore. You don't have to engineer around them nearly as much. 
Um, and when they do happen, like deal with it. Like someone's written this playbook before you can figure it out. You don't have to like find the, you don't have to like be the one bushwhacking through this jungle. Um, and, um, and that, that just gives me like so much optimism for, for what we're going to be able to do, um, in the next, you know, let's call it 10 years. And I think that's a nice thread in terms of building, building in Canada and timing with tier, what you're building now. What was kind of the timing or the trend you saw there? And, you know, like, where do you go from here? There's all these pieces of the software development stack that have, you know, become very well-tooled around automation and, um, and, and instrumentation. So you think about the shift that's happened in marketing from buying banner ads and just hoping that eyeballs hit them and somehow those like trickle down <laughs> into like someone signing up for your app to now today you're like generating specific copy to retarget the right people, individuals maybe, or, or personas um, in ad networks to get, to get a message in front of them. That's going to convert um, in product. You know, we're able to get so much more data about who users are, how they're using the product, how we can uh, enhance um, whether it's an onboarding workflow or uh, the delivery of a feature that they need to be successful. And so you've got all these disciplines that have made this shift. And on the technical side, we've moved, you know, from um, sort of these like monolithic uh, approaches to now much more modular sort of um, much more iterative ways to build software. And the one thing that really hasn't changed in the at all is sort of how you collect money at the end of the day. We've had these business model shifts. People love subscriptions, you know, like Salesforce, <laughs> no software. Like we've moved from um, pay, pay annually, pay once for a perpetual license um, to to subscribe monthly. And now there's this sort of movement towards usage-based billing. Right? Billing. Um, but the tools to implement all of that are actually quite rudimentary. I mean, billing is sort of the primary way people think about revenue collection in software. It's like, what API do I hit in order to generate an invoice to send to a payment provider that hopefully gets paid? Um, not a lot of data comes back. You get some chargebacks. Um, maybe some failed payments that you have to do some dunning on. Uh, so you probably have a service to do that. Um, but there's there's no real um, feedback loop that goes like all the way to the end, like all the way to what a customer's paying and what they're paying for, and and what and and what their perception of that is to like how you're building your software. And so billing as a, an application, which is sort of as it exists, or an API at best as, as it exists today, is sort of, it's, you're, you're kind of shifting all of the source of truth about your revenue outside of your, the core of your business. And so with Tier, my co-founders and I have all built businesses where we've experienced this problem, which is you have some sort of pricing model, you were, maybe you update your software, maybe the market shifts, maybe you're targeting users, whatever it is. Now you need to change how you're charging for your software. And to do that becomes like this technical like act of heroism. Like it's just like the amount of engineering effort that needs to go in to refactoring an external system 
pulling its data into your to your to your systems doing something smart with that and then like having a new pricing model and by the way not pissing off all of your existing customers either um with the, with that sort of unannounced pricing change or something becomes very difficult so we were like we just want to solve this problem we want to create an end to end solution for pricing and so tier is um orchestrates all of the systems related to 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 pricing in your application we turn pricing into a configuration so that it's versioned and it's it's something that you know you don't change once you publish it um which means that you can grandfather users and you can upsell them on features and do all those things you want to do and we make it really really easy then for a developer just to manage it over time so the primary reason our customers are using tier is in the past they've used a billing engine they've had to make some change in their you know pricing model or their go to market model or whatever it is and now, just like you're retargeting users with your marketing content and you're providing context-aware customer support bots that understand just how to help that customer, we're now helping customers tailor their pricing in ways that are more meaningful to their customers so that they can use their software, get value from it, understand the value they're getting, and then feel like they're paying accordingly. I'd love to jump into the quick fire round. And would love to know what your favorite book is. And if you can't pick a favorite, maybe just something you're currently reading. It would be hard to pick a favorite. Um, although <laughs> there's a, a book called Batavia's Graveyard, which is about the ship Batavia that um, sunk on its way um, from the Netherlands to um, Jakarta, I believe it was. And um, it's an incredible story about the absolute nightmare that unfolded on an island where everyone was marooned. It's a true story. Absolutely, totally thrilling read. And from an organizational behavior point of view, like there's some stuff that you can, you as a as a co as a founder CEO, there are things in there you should be aware of um, in terms of how people behave when they become a little bit untethered. Um, uh, in terms of straight up business book, um. The Carlota Perez book that I mentioned earlier, I think is a must read for people right now, just with like, you know, like going from like social media to crypto to now AI and then to like whatever's next, like understand what technology is, how it impacts the economy and culture, primarily the economy in this case, and how to think about the phases that it goes through, like very important um meta sort of um understanding to have and then currently reading i'm reading untangled a guide to raising uh daughters essentially the 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 seven steps to adulthood i have three daughters they are ages 10 8 and 6 and so <laughs> this book is uh is giving me some really incredible insights that i'm going to definitely try and apply and so yeah I'm, that's that's the book i have my um my nose in at the moment in terms of like shift and market um i know apple is going to release their like mixed reality headset early june do you think that could be another platform or is it too early to tell it's super interesting right so um like meta facebook did not make the leap from the social graph to the content graph um so 
we all really cared about what our cousins and high school friends and people were doing online whenever they, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, they were our context for society. Like that, that mattered. That was the lens. That is the social network was how we viewed society. Um, TikTok like came along and just threw a hand grenade into that room and said like, you do not care about what your old coworker from 10 years ago is doing. You care about like interesting content relative, relevant to your interests that we can put in front of you now. And it turns out like that model just like stole all of the attention. And so Facebook has essentially spent a good five years trying to keep the social network relevant. And think about what they own. Instagram, which is now much more content graphy, but wasn't. Um, Facebook, pure content graph, although they're trying to stuff tons of stuff into your feed now, you probably noticed. And then WhatsApp, which is like, you know, the dominant um, closed social network and actually has a lot of utility, um, but is very hard to monetize, extremely hard to monetize. Um, and so, 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 okay, there's this shift to the content graph. Facebook is clearly lost. I mean, they are, there's nothing they're doing that, that comes close to, to competing with, um, with what you're seeing in, in, in the growth of the content graph and advertisers like clearly are fleeing. I mean, if you look at the quality of the, the ads and stuff in, in your Facebook feed, you'll, you'll just notice it's, there's a couple good ones in there and then there's a lot of crap. And so, but then they come out with this meta thing and like, I'm just like, when I saw that, I was like, Oh, it's, they're so fucking done. Like, this is like, this is clearly just pure desperation for, to, to be relevant. Um, and I think that that is like, there's definitely some truth to that. Like there's a lot of desperation in that move. Um, and when people start renaming companies, like really truly have to ask what they're running from as much as you are like what they're running to. And so, you know, written off for dead, like just not worth the time anymore. That's definitely like sort of where I was and definitely I'm still partially there. Um, but then this AI thing comes along, right? And it's like, we're all sort of starting to pay more attention to it. And chat GPT is like really, really interesting. It'll rewrite your emails. It'll do a little bit of research for you. Maybe it kind of helps you with the blog post at a high utility value. Um, and then you're like paying attention to mid journey and you're looking at, you know, all of a sudden you're on hugging face and you're like, Oh, like, man, there's like, people are building models for stuff. That's just not generating like, you know, an email or a blog post. Like, um, there's like, there's actual, um, like artifacts being generated by these things that are pretty interesting. And so we're now seeing it with those cameo type songs, like the Drake, you know, and little Nas or whatever song. And uh, I saw a video, like a fake advertisement that was purely done, purely generated um, um, uh, the other day. And so like people are like manipulating media. Obviously humans just love like consuming media is just, that's pretty much all we do. And then, and then, Okay, so then a couple of these artifacts are getting created, and then you start to realize, like, oh crap, like Meta and Apple and 
and you know who knows who else is going to kind of be jumping on scene they're like they're building programmable environments that that like that are boring as hell right now because like someone has to like decide what that environment's going to be like and then you have to want to be in that environment and then it has to remain interesting enough over a long enough period of time to compete with real life and it just can't meet that bar as it is but then when you think about like you know once a large language model is starting to control a 3d rendering engine and its inputs are all the things your wants and desires and your needs like it's like oh shit this thing's coming full circle like this bet is looks to me like one of the worst bets in history changing the company to meta um you know like apple spending billions of dollars on this like these glorified goggles you're going to strap to your face um still something about that just feels i'm like bad bet but then you think about it and you're like oh boy like this is going to give people everything they want when they want it and how they want it and if anything we've seen in the last few years with tiktok it's that when you give people what they want how they want it when they want it they just sit on that screen and they do not turn away um and so i think it's like the next few years are going to be like really really fascinating um because i feel like there's been a lot more at play here than just like there's a reason OpenAI rushed into the market as quickly as they did to get their technology out there first. It's not because they were the only ones. It's because there's been a lot of investment in this space. And I think we're going to start to see that investment come like to fruition across a whole bunch of like companies and product lines. And um, yeah, I just, I've like no idea where it's going, but it feels like uh, it's going to be very interesting. What are you most excited about in the next 12 months personally and professionally? Uh, personally, it's pretty straightforward. I've got three, three daughters who like every day are a different simulation. So like, I, uh, I truly like, you know, I just love spending time with them. Um, I do a one-on-one -on -one trip with each of them every two years. So I just took one daughter to Mexico city. Um, my other daughter, she's eight. She loves to skateboard. We're going to go to a skateboard camp um, down in South America. And so that's sort of, that's, that's my, that's my personal, if when it comes to personal stuff, that's what I'm most excited about. Um, professionally, it's, yeah, it's understanding the impact of, you know, the better understanding the impact of AI on monetization and, and how, what we've been building, you know, what our customers have been using to like, configure their pricing how can we start to like what, what what's the autopilot button for them so we can start to like optimize revenue yield in all of these environments in real time based on like the actual value real and perceived that a customer is getting from the tool and it's really cool like you, you know we've spent a couple of years now building this like infrastructure layer like really boring stuff actually like nothing like you know like really sort of basic and just but very rigid and you know testable and maintainable and reliable and now we can kind of get to the fun part um, where we're applying like really nice uis to it we are starting to play with models and how they can improve the work that our customers are doing and then eventually it's like how 
do they start doing the work for for our customers? And um, I'm just super, yeah, really excited about that. And then I'm going to be fascinated to see in terms of the capital markets and stuff, like it's just fun to live through this again. Like we're in this stage, it's like the doldrums. It's like really depressing in a lot of ways in terms of like, you know, um, startup fundraising and all of that stuff that we used to love to wave the flag for and everything. But you've been through it. You're like, this is going to end and there's going to be winners and losers. And like, you know, where do you want to be? Um, and it's fun to, it's just kind of fun to see that through again. So yeah, it'd be, be interesting next year. How do you deal with hard times? You've been a founder multiple times, your father multiple times over. Um, how do you deal with that? Do you have any strategies or tactics? I wrote a blog post like 12 years ago that was just sort of was like, here is the mental, you know, uh, like here's the reality of being an entrepreneur. Um, and at the time, like, I think that was a bit novel because like not a lot of people were like, there weren't a lot of resources. I think there's a lot more now, um, for people. Um, the main thing though, is just to recognize the context that you're in. I mean, like, my company now, like we're three co-founders. We have a couple of folks working with us, contract. We're not like hiring like crazy and like burning through our cash and just assuming everything's going to like work out. Like, you know, it's like, no, we've got to build a product that people love. <laughs> you've got to like pay us for it. And, and we need to make sure that they keep using it. And um, that's a very different, you know, just like th two years ago, three years ago, like people would have been like, man, what's your problem? Like, why are you such a, like, you know, why are you, why are you the, the, the bummer at the party? Um, and, uh, and so it's just a different context now. And so I don't think any time is harder or easier for an entrepreneur. There's a lot less noise now hiring. Like you, like we have amazing people working with us. Um, who pay, you know, are excited and pay a lot of attention and do great work. And they're not distracted by all these sort of other things happening. It's the same thing with customers. There's a lot less noise now, just a lot less noise. And, but you can't be, they're not, they're also just not taking every little meeting and saying yes to everything. And so if you don't recognize that and you can't modify your approach, then yeah, it's hard. It's hard because you're doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. If you see it and you can put yourself in that context, then it's, it's just, it's running a business. And then the big question is like, when do things change? Like, don't be too early and don't be too late. Um, that's where you get caught. And I'd like to wrap it up. Just open up the mic to you. Just, you want to chat about anything, talk about tier, talk about whatever you'd want. Uh, the only thing I would say is like, it's, it is, I've said this, I feel like I say this every five years, but it is like, it is such an amazing time to be an entrepreneur. I love what you're doing. Kind of, it's a lot of what this podcast is doing is a lot of what we did with Startup North, you know, a decade and a half ago in terms of just taking the voices and, and helping elevate those and helping kind of get new ideas out there. Um, so thank you for that. And if, you know, it is, it is an amazing time and it's great to be excited about technology and like, yeah, we're in sort of a downswing right now, making our way through it. 
don't don't let that if you're an entrepreneur and like that is where you want like what you want to do with your life like that's the last thing you should worry about you you know you're going to be able to find a way and so um uh i would just encourage people to yeah get out there and get started on that journey and um canada's a great place to do it so let's keep talking about how you do it here and what makes it special and what's maybe sometimes a little bit harder but you know um it's all stuff that you can you can you can know and deal with and work through i love that i appreciate you coming on and chatting and sharing those insights and yeah just thanks again that was a lot of fun awesome thanks a lot evan If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.